The rest of us this morning are going to be in the book of Romans, and so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And If you're new to the Bible, perhaps we just gave you one this morning. Uh, we'd love to have you just look at the table of contents, and you'll find a page number for Romans, and you should have plenty of time to get there because I have a, an elongated introduction. But before we get to that, if you'd pray with me one more time. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for this day that you have given us to, to live, to learn to live for you and to seek Christ and His glory and His honor. And we would ask that you would do that in and through us. And we would ask certainly now at this time in this service, you would allow us to learn from you, from your word, and that you would supernaturally, through the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to understand so that ultimately our lives might be changed and we might live for the glory of Christ in this place. For Christ sake and glory and name we pray. Amen. Well, I was converted about 20 years ago. And if you've been a believer very long or if you're a brand new believer, you think about those early days and you think, those are good days. Not that the, the days today aren't good, but there's a special kind of joy that you sense when you're a new Christian. After all, you've just figured out for the first time about the greatness of what Christ has done for you. Not only that, Christ is, uh, is changing your life and He's making you more and more uh, like Himself and that's happening for the first time. And so it really stands out and it's really exciting. Some of the, the best years of my whole life or best memories I have are of those early days of being a Christian. They were such joyous times. But they weren't all joyous, right? In fact, there's something that happened to me early on in my Christian life that bothered me like nothing else. In fact, it still bothers me. The joy didn't go uninterrupted. You see, I was so excited about Christ. I was so excited about the cross and what Christ had done for me. And, and I wanted to tell everybody about how I'd become a Christian. And I was so naive as to think that everyone would think it's as good as I thought it is. And so I just expected my friends to say, "Isn't that, that's great, you believe the truth about Jesus Christ, and isn't it great that you thought you were a Christian before, and it's been clear now that you're not a, you weren't a Christian, and you've become a Christian, and I just kind of expected everyone, naively so, to think it was a good thing, and that didn't really happen, and so I, I learned quickly to, to be drawn toward believers, and people who said they're Christians, and go to church, and all that kind of thing, so I would be really excited in front of them, and tell them about how great Christ is, and so on and so forth, and then I was met with not all of those people were too excited either. It was almost like they were like kind of embarrassed for me or maybe even ashamed of me. I don't know. It was very awkward. In fact, I remember on one occasion, and I just want to share some examples, I went to someone who was close to me and, and my family, and, and I told this person about how I was going to a Bible study, and we were studying the book of Romans, and I was learning all this stuff about Christ and, and all that he had done. I was learning about the gospel, and I was so excited, and I was expecting affirmation. I was expecting fellowship there, and they looked at me like I was a fool. And I just did not know how to process that. It just, it just didn't make sense. They, they looked at me like they somehow were ashamed of me or what I was talking about. It was very, very troubling, very, very odd. 
I remember a little bit later, and Molly and I were engaged, and we were uh, engaged to be married, and we started meeting with the, one of the pastors of the church she was raised in, and, and we were meeting with this man, and he uh, saw, and it was obvious that we were pretty excited about Christ, and we wanted to serve him, and, and so after one of our meetings before uh, getting married, he said, would you two like to go and be sponsors of a junior high retreat? Because these junior high students are being confirmed. They're going to be welcomed in as full members of the church or whatever, something like that. Yeah, I was so excited. Absolutely. I can't wait to go as a college student. I can't wait to go talk to these junior high students and help them through this process. And so we, we agreed to be uh, the sponsors and we went with them. And, and I'll never forget meeting with one of the junior high boys and talking to him at this retreat center and talking about basic questions about the gospel. And, and this young man made it clear that he didn't believe certain basic things that would relate to the gospel. He didn't believe certain things that are just basic, straightforward, biblical things. And I was really burdened. And so I'm looking up verses. And, you know, I don't know too much yet, but I'm excited. I can find some verses and show them these things in the Bible. But then I knew right away what I needed to do as soon as it was, it was appropriate. I went and talked to the pastor. And I was so burdened. I said, you know, I've got this guy over here. And he's supposed to be confirmed as a member of the church. And, you know, he doesn't even believe some of the basic things that relate to the gospel. And I need you to go talk to him because I know you know more than I do. And you know the Bible and you can kind of set him straight. And, uh, you know, maybe he needs to become a Christian. And, and certainly he couldn't be confirmed unless that happens. And, and you might guess what happened. I, I was effectively patted on the head and... Uh, the man said something like, well, you know, different words mean different things to different people at different times in their life or some load of manure like that. <laughs> and I, I was devastated. I, didn't, I did not get it. I didn't have a box for this in my life. I didn't, I didn't understand. I mean, this is a pastor. We're talking about things that have to do with Christianity, about the gospel. And, and why is it that he looked at me like somehow he was embarrassed that I would even be so motivated by this? Then someone helped me. They helped me to understand that historically there's a name for this, and this isn't anything new. This is, this is called theological liberalism. This is Protestant liberalism where they say they're Christians, they say they believe the gospel, but actually they redefine everything and it doesn't really ultimately matter what you believe because you're the ultimate authority anyway. And that helped. Not a lot. <laughs> but it at least helped that, that, okay, I have a place for this. And then it helped me because I figured out, okay, that's not what I want. That doesn't make any sense to be ashamed of the gospel. I need to move on and I need to find people who believe the, go believe the gospel and believe the Bible. And so, that's what I sought to do. Expecting that then those people would never be ashamed of the gospel. Well, I'm a new Christian at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and involved in a campus ministry and I get invited to this thing they had called the Island Party. And it's one of the best memories I have as a new Christian. Because I went, and there were all of these other Christians there. And they were just normal people. You know, they weren't weird. I mean, they were just normal. And when I went, I thought, this is great. They're my age. And you know what? They love Christ too. And they really want to pursue Christ uh, now that Christ has saved them. And I had a great time. I showed up there and they're playing uh, Christian music that was centered on the cross and about the greatness of Christ. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, not only that, someone g stood up and gave their testimony of how they became a Christian. I thought that was great because I could identify with that because that had just happened in my life. And what he was saying lined up with what the Bible said. That was Christ exalted 
exalting. Not only that, then we sang songs about Christ. Here we were, you know, on a Friday night or whatever, down by the river, singing these songs about Christ, about the gospel. It was like a spiritual high for me. I needed that kind of fellowship. It was amazing. Fast forward one year. I'm so excited about this, I tell all my roommates, Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, Molly and I, I remember we, we went together and one of my roommates, uh, Steve, we, I think we rode with him as a matter of fact. And I told other people about it, you got to go to this thing. I told unbelieving friends because I know they'd hear the gospel. And we went. And they were playing music, but this time it wasn't Christian music. I didn't really understand that. It didn't make a lot of sense, but oh well. And if someone gave their testimony, I can't remember. It wasn't really clear about the gospel. And then we sang songs. But they weren't Christian songs about the gospel. They were silly songs. Not even the veggie tale kinds. I mean, just silly pop culture songs. And I didn't have a box for that. I didn't get it. I'm like, what? So later I asked, I mean, I was just kind of devastated. That was something I was really looking forward to. I talked to one of the leaders and I said, you know, what, what happened? I, I don't understand. You know, just help me. Well, he said, well, that's because this was evangelistic. You know, as if I would get it now. Oh, it's evangelistic. That's why you didn't talk about the gospel. I get it. <laughs> I didn't get it at all. I, I, told, I just didn't get it. Why were we acting like somehow we were embarrassed about Jesus? It was an evangelistic event. That's kind of the whole deal. And from then on in my Christian life, I have not been so naive. You know, it's as if the hits just keep on rolling. I remember later on, now I know a little bit more, and watching an interview. Peter Jennings is interviewing the man who at the time was probably the most influential evangelical on the planet. And Peter Jennings was smart enough to ask good questions, and he said, why is it that your church doesn't have a cross? And, according to my transcription, in part, he said, to capture the essence of Christianity in a single symbol is a little dangerous. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't get that memo in 1 Corinthians 2 too, because he captured all of Christianity in the cross because it's the gospel. Why do I share all of this? I share all of this because this is a problem. It has been a problem. It's not just limited to theological liberalism. It goes across all different boundaries through evangelicalism. It goes everywhere. We seem to really, really, really have a problem at times being unashamed of the gospel. Making the gospel clear. It seems like too often we work hard. We strive together, not for the furtherance of the gospel, as Philippians says, but to somehow make the gospel palatable to the point where it's not even the gospel anymore. And I don't think we're above that or beyond that. I don't think people set out in the beginning of their Christian experience typically and think, you know what I'm going to be all about in my life? You know what I'm going to do? You know what we're going to do as a church? We're going to do our very best to make the gospel something other than what Jesus said it was. We start out and we, we're excited about what Christ has done for us through His cross work and we're thrilled about it and we want to tell other people and then somehow, because of different circumstances, we're embarrassed by it and so we don't talk about it anymore. I know I'm not above that. 
We're not above that as a church. We're not beyond that. So today what we're going to do is we're going to be reminded from the Bible in Romans after this long introduction about not being ashamed of the gospel and how it is we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. But before we actually get into Romans, I want you to turn to one book to the right, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So that we might understand why this happens. We're going to go to Romans today and we're going to see some reasons that the Holy Spirit gives us through the Apostle Paul for not being ashamed of the gospel. So that we're not. But first, let's see why we have a tendency to do that. Let's understand the problem. Let's understand why I as a Christian will understand why I as a pastor, why you as a Christian, you as a pastor if you are one, whatever, whatever it is, why we, we do have a tendency to somehow be embarrassed by Jesus. As much as we wouldn't want to, we learn in 1 Corinthians 1.18 why this happens. In verse 18, it says, of 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross, that's another way of saying the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, I know it goes on to say, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. But that first part gives us an answer to our question, why does this even happen? Why are we tempted to be ashamed? The word of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Ah, there it is. I kind of wish someone would have shared that with me a long time ago. Maybe they did, and I just didn't pay attention. You know why there's something deep in my heart that I don't want you to know about that that causes me to, to maybe want to trim the edges of the gospel so it's not quite so pointed? Why maybe I want to call something the gospel that never talks about sin? You know why I kind of want to water it down and make it more palatable? It's because I know that the gospel, the word of the cross, is foolishness to lots of people. And I don't like people to think I'm a fool. In fact, if I liked people to think I was a fool, I probably am a fool. I mean, who here likes to be considered stupid? Who here likes people to to, to conclude that they're foolish, that they're ignorant? I want people to like me. I want people to like Christians. I want people to, to, to like Omaha Bible Church. I mean, it's just part, part of how we are. It's just natural. But we need to know what the Bible says. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That gives me a clue. It gives me some idea why there's just something in me that wants to soft sell the gospel. It's because I want people to like me and I want people to like us and... That's a problem. So we're feeling the pressure. We want people to like us, but we want Jesus to like us too. So, so God, equip us. Embolden us. Make us so we're not ashamed, because it is also the power of God unto salvation. And Romans 1, 16 and 17 gives us two great reasons why we should never, ever, ever, ever be ashamed of the gospel. And we're going to focus on both of those. Two great reasons, Romans 1, 16 to 17, two biblical reasons, powerful reasons why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. They are the reasons why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and we want to follow suit. And then, by way of conclusion at the very end, we'll look at a third good reason, a third compelling biblical reason why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, and that one will come to us from Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 8. So here's, here's where I'm at. I just need, I need some encouragement. 
I trust you need some encouragement. When you look at the, the, the churchianity landscape, it looks like the church at large needs some encouragement because we are prone to wonder when it comes to this matter of the greatness of Christ and His gospel. So I hope today helps. I hope it encourages. I hope it sustains so that Christ will be glorified through His gospel. Well, let's jump right into Romans 1 in verse 16. Paul gives his opening remarks throughout these first 17 verses. Included in this section is verse 16. And look what he says there. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He wants to go on the record as saying, if there's anything I'm not ashamed of, it is the gospel, the good news that God, out of His great love, sent His Son to live a perfect life for us, to die a sinner's death for us, to rise again from the dead for us, that we can have His righteousness through faith. That's the gospel. And He says, I'm not ashamed of that. And, and we're, we're drawn to that as Christians because we know it's not right to be ashamed. It's not right to be embarrassed by Jesus. And so I see that and I say, tell me more. I want to learn about this because I too want to have that kind of fervency and that commitment. And I want us to have that as a church permeating every ministry for us to really and truly be able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not embarrassed by Jesus and Him saying things like, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Apparently, he was being accused of this. Paul was. If we were to take the time to to look at the verses that come before, he emphasizes and emphasizes and emphasizes again that he wanted to come to Rome. He wanted to come to Rome. He wanted to come to Rome. Circumstantially, he wasn't able to get to Rome yet. Apparently, there were some people that were interpreting that as he was ashamed. He was intimidated by big bad Rome, the power center, uh, the Gentile power center on planet earth. It was the place. And apparently, people were saying, well, perhaps Paul is just ashamed. He's afraid. He's intimidated. And so that's why he hasn't come. And he's made it clear, no, 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 no. I want to come. I will when I can. I'm going to get there. And we've studied this already. We've even looked at 16 and 17 already. But I wanted to come back to it for this practical purpose of being equipped today. And he is making it clear that has nothing to do with why I haven't come. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Perish the thought a million times over. I'm not embarrassed by Jesus. And after that bold, clear, crisp declaration, he gives us two reasons. One in verse 16, one in verse 17. Let's learn about why he's not ashamed. What, what enabled him, if you will, to have such resolve? Number one, reason number one, it is divinely powerful to save. It is divinely powerful to save. The gospel is divinely powerful to save. The first reason we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel is the same reason he wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it is divinely powerful to save. In other words, it makes no sense it makes no sense at all to be ashamed of the gospel because of, because of its power. Look at verse 16 where he goes on to say, For it is, referring to the gospel, the power of God for salvation. It's nonsensical a million times over to be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Before we get to the salvation part, just think about what a great and impressive statement that is. The gospel is the power of God? 
That's major. The God who speaks creation into being. He's powerful. He's he's omnipotent, we say in theology. He's all-powerful. He is called over and over again in the Bible, almighty. He has all the power. And the gospel is the power of God. It's amazing. Who, Who would be ashamed of that? Who in their right mind would be ashamed of something that is the power of God? It just doesn't make any sense. What's extraordinarily impressive about this is he's not just talking about a manifestation of the power of God. You wouldn't want to be ashamed of that. I mean, God has done amazing and powerful things. And if if we know about something amazing and powerful that God has done, we should be impressed, not ashamed. But he's not just talking about anything. He's talking about something personal. He's talking about something that affects people, that affects people like us. It's the power of God for salvation. It's not the power of God for creation, as amazing as that that would be, or or something else. The power of God for salvation. It doesn't get any better than that for people like us. It doesn't get any better than that for sinners. The gospel, the truth about Christ is the power of God for salvation? For me to be rescued? For me to be delivered? This is fantastic. And I think he uses that word salvation loaded with all that it could be loaded with. Meaning uh, everything that's positive in salvation. Uh, We've got redemption in Christ. We have justification. We have sanctification. We have glorification. We are saved for God, unto God, eternal life. All this great stuff that we're going to learn about in Romans later. But then you've got the other side of it, what you're saved from. We're saved from the just wrath of God. We're saved from being uh, under God's uh, enemy status. Uh, Romans chapter 5. We're saved from bondage to our sin. Romans chapter 6. I mean, this just couldn't get any better. The power of God for salvation? You see, this really is the well we need to drink from. You want to make sure that you're not going to be embarrassed by Jesus? It's important that you remember what the gospel is. It's important that we go back and go back and go back to what it is. It is the power of God for salvation, and it includes everything that salvation includes. Again, I have to say it again. No one in their right mind who's thinking about this would dare want to be ashamed of the gospel knowing how great and how powerful it is. It's remarkable. If I may, just as a footnote, just remind you there where it says it's the power of God for salvation. Just please make sure you see that God is the one who does it. The Gospel is not God assisting you so that you can save yourself. The gospel is not anything, 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 anything other than the power of God, who's the acting agent? God. For salvation, who's the Savior? It is God through His Son. This is good. If that's really true, and that's what the Bible presents to us everywhere, 
I am not ashamed of the cross of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the work of God and salvation. No, in fact, I want to boast in it. He does it all. It's all His work, the power of God for salvation. Romans 5.8, we know it well, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To even get a mere glimpse of what the gospel really is and to be embarrassed by it, they just don't fit. It's oil and water. It just doesn't fit. If I'm not making the gospel clear, if I'm showing signs of being ashamed of the gospel, I give you full permission to challenge me on whether or not I really know what the gospel is. And please challenge me if I've ever actually personally experienced its benefits. Because if I've tasted and I've experienced, you know what's going to happen is, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to want to tell you about how great it is. The power of God unto salvation. It couldn't be better than that. It's the best way to keep ourselves from being ashamed. Well, as if it couldn't get any better. (laughs) It does. Keep reading. Keep reading in verse 16. This isn't limited to a nationality. This isn't limited to a culture. This isn't limited to a small group of people or one particular region. No, he goes on to say, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It just got better. This isn't just for, for a certain kind of people. This is just, this transcends every culture. This transcends every time. This transcends every people group. This is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't matter. Yes, to the Jew first. Yes, they are God's chosen people. Yes, they have a unique history and background. Yes, it says in chapter 1, verse 2, which He promised beforehand through His prophets. Those are Old Testament prophets, Jewish prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Those are the Jewish Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's not taking away from that in any way, shape, or form, but He doesn't limit it to the Jews. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. By the way, that includes everybody. It's great! There are lots of different reasons why the gospel is called the gospel. This is the good news. Once again, if we're ashamed of it, we probably just don't understand how good it is and how great it is. This is absolutely amazing that people can be saved even if they're not Jews. People can be saved if they believe regardless of what, or regardless of what they, they may have done. This is absolutely astounding for everyone who believes. Isn't this good? I'm just having my own little private worship service up here. I don't know what you guys are doing. (laughs) But I consider preaching an act of worship, and man, I'm having a great time. (laughs) It's just so, I would say, incredibly good, but it's not incredible. This is so credibly good because Christ is so good and He has shown us His good love, His matchless love. 
And so it is good for us to again go back to what the gospel is. We see that it is God's power, God's omnipotent, almighty power for salvation to everyone who believes. And think about this. When you feel the pressure maybe to trim the gospel's edges, when you feel the pressure to water it down because you're talking to someone who is not like you, who is different than you are, because that's how we think sometimes. You go to Romans 1.16. It is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That just helped you. That just emboldened you because you know what? This gospel is the gospel for every different kind of person. This is very emboldening for us, and I love that. Because I struggle with being ashamed of the gospel, even though I know I shouldn't. Well, let's build upon this. He gives a second reason. It's a lot like the first reason. It's hard to distinguish between the two, but he does give another reason. A second reason for not being ashamed of the gospel is because it reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals the righteousness of God or it discloses the righteousness of God. It it unpacks, it uncovers, it makes clear the righteousness of God. Look at verse 17. For in it, obviously it's referring to the gospel. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We can stop there for now. Now let's just assume we don't even know what that means. Even if we don't know what that means, it's good. I mean, if the gospel is something that reveals something, that unpacks something, that makes clear something that is true about God, you know what? I shouldn't be ashamed because I want people to know about who God is. And I don't even know what the verse means yet, but I know that it's good. And, and I certainly know that it's something that I shouldn't be ashamed about. But I think we can, we can know. The gospel, the truth about Christ and His cross work, reveals the righteousness of God. First issue is righteousness. We don't even use that word very much. Especially if you're new to the Bible, you think, righteousness? We just use it in a pejorative kind of way in our culture. We talk about being people who are self-righteous. But righteous and righteousness are good words. You start working your way reading through the Bible. You read the Old Testament. You read it through and righteousness is all over the place. And then you get to the New Testament and it doesn't stop. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. Justice, justice, justice. They come from the same basic word, same idea. And so whatever this is, it's telling us something that is true about God that is talked about a lot in the Bible. Basic idea of being straight as opposed to crooked fair, uh, it's a judgment term, a fair and just judge, following the law, not compromising, not taking bribes, those kinds of things. Somehow, and we're going to get to it, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross work of Christ, reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals something that is very important in the Bible and important to God. I think we can see that it reveals the righteousness of God. We can look at righteousness from three different angles. So let's do that. Let's look at this from three different perspectives. How is it that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? Well, righteousness can be used, and I think it's intended here, in its most basic sense, it reveals something that is true about the character of God. In it, the in the gospel, the righteousness of God, that which is true about God, that He is righteous, that's revealed. Let's talk about that. God said, 
Where there's sin, there will be death. The wages of sin is what? It's death. We know that. That's basic. That's Old Testament truth. Emphasized in the New Testament as well. Declared in the New Testament, actually. I'm quoting that verse. But that's what God has said. He's the creator. He has the right to make the rules. He sets everything up and there's a rule. He has the right to do it. If you sin, you'll die. And it's not just physical death and we can talk about why we won't this morning. What happens? Uh, I've sinned. Ask my wife. (laughs) You've sinned too. And not only do we sin, we actually have a sin nature. Again, we can talk about that. We won't do that this morning. We're sinners. God says sinners have to die. And ultimately, it's in the second death we read in the Bible at the end. Therefore, there is no salvation. If God were to say, you know what, Pat, I know you've sinned and, 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 and all that, but pfft, I'm just going to let bygones be bygones and, and I forgive you. Or if He were to say that about you, He wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be just. Or if He were to say, Pat, if you just go to church enough times, all right, you get to go to heaven, you don't have to go to hell. He wouldn't be righteous because He said... The wages of sin is death. So what do we do? How is it that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? Oh, God in His perfect wisdom and out of His love and His grace and compassion has His Son come into this world, become one of us, then live a perfectly righteous life on our behalf, then die a sinner's death on the cross where God the Father is pouring out His wrath upon His Son so His Son is experiencing the death sentence that I deserve. Then His Son rises again from the dead on my behalf. Oh, guess what? It emphasizes the righteousness of God in an amazing way because Romans will go on to say that God is the just, the righteous, and the justifier, the one who declares righteous based upon faith in Christ. This is amazing. This is awesome. And we'll get to this stuff in Romans chapter 3. The gospel, the cross, exalts and magnifies the righteousness of God like nothing else. And it is absolutely amazing to see that this God and His perfect wisdom can be at the same time the just and the justifier. I love it. There's one sense in which the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. There's a second way that the righteousness of God could be emphasized here, and I'd like to show it to you, and that is in this way. Sometimes righteousness is used synonymously for salvation. Okay? It's it's used as another term for salvation, and and I think that's the case here. It would make it look a lot like Romans 1.16. I just want to show you one passage. You might want to write it in your Bible. I did. If you write in your Bible once in a while, this might be a good time to do it. But in Isaiah 46, you can just turn there. Middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Then you work your way to the right to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 13. There are some Bible teachers and Bible interpreters that want to have it be just one of these three. And... Uh, There's lots of ink invested in that argument. I'm just going to give you all three of them. And others would suggest that, you know what, you can see all three, so let's not 
force ourselves to say it's one or the other. It shows us the righteous character of God, the gospel does. That's certainly true. It also shows us God's saving power. Righteousness can be used that way. Isaiah 46, verse 13 would be an example. Isaiah 46, 13, it says, I will bring near my righteousness. That's God speaking. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. He's, he's, he's overlapping the ideas, but he's using different words. He's using righteousness. He's using salvation. And then he goes on to say, and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. That gives us a good clue that God sometimes uses this idea of righteousness for God being good and saving people. And so if you take that with you, that cross-reference, and you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, excuse me, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God, the saving goodness of God, uh, you could say, is revealed. Well, we certainly know that that's true. And there's a third way that righteous, righteousness could be used here, and I certainly think it is being used here in this last sense. Third way that righteousness is used, and that's in the sense of God giving us righteousness. Another word for that that we see often is justifying. God is declaring us righteous. He's giving us that which we don't have. He's giving us His righteousness. He's justifying us. And that seems to be certainly in view because He's going to link it to faith. We receive, we see this righteousness through faith. That seems to be this idea of justification that God gives us the, 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 the goodness and the righteousness of Christ and it comes through faith in His Son. So here's what we need to remember. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Second reason, because it reveals the righteousness of God. It demonstrates the righteousness of God. Not only that God is righteous, but also that God is saving. Also that that God is justifying. That God gives righteousness. He's a giver of righteousness, specifically through His Son. So it doesn't make sense to be ashamed of the gospel. And then verse 17 once again shows us this is only by faith. Look with me again at verse 17 as we continue to focus on that second reason. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As one translation puts it, by faith from first to last. Seems to be the idea. From the very beginning to the very end. I mean, it's only by faith. It's another way of saying it's by faith alone. How do we receive this righteousness? It's from faith to faith. It's it's from faith to the beginning, faith at the end. The only way to get this righteousness from God is by faith. And then he goes on to to give Old Testament justification or proof as it is written. He says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Along with some very good company, I think the marginal translation that you see in the margin of your Bible, if you happen to have one, is better. It goes like this. But he who is righteous by faith shall live. He who is righteous by faith shall live. If you have that in your margin, you might want to put a little circle around that. You could translate it that way, and that way seems to fit the context of Romans a lot better. We know that God gives us the righteousness of Christ. It's from faith to faith. It's only by faith. And then he quotes Old Testament proof text to support that. And it is, it can be translated, He who is righteous by faith shall live. How do we receive righteousness? Well, we believe in God based upon the merits of Christ that we need His righteousness. And so based upon that, then we have life. We have eternal life 
we live. All he's saying is what he's already said really in verse 16. He's emphasizing the same thing over and over again that the gospel is by faith. Righteousness is by faith. This is good news. No, it's great news. Therefore, why would we be ashamed? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first and also to the Greek. Then he gives another reason building upon that. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And and how do we gain the righteousness of God? We gain the righteousness of God based upon faith. And as we will see in the rest of Romans, it's faith in Christ. Faith, Faith in the finished work of Christ. Think about it. You can have perfect righteousness... Knowing that you're a sinner, you could be justified by faith based upon the perfect merits of Christ, which is the gospel. Why in the world would you want to water that down? Why in the world would you want to trim the edges? Why in the world would you be embarrassed by Jesus? The gospel ultimately is you can have His righteousness, which you desperately need because He bore your sins. Let's work hard, folks, at not mumbling about that and showing that we are therefore really ashamed. By the grace of God, let's embrace that personally. And if we do, we won't be ashamed. We'll want to proclaim that. We'll want to not work hard and and, and struggle and go through great angst trying to somehow make the gospel something other than it is so more people believe it and we'll have a bigger crowd. Let's work hard at making the gospel clear because it's the power of God and salvation and because it's the ultimate revelation of the righteousness of God and there's nothing that could be better than that. We should be boasting in it, not finding ourselves ashamed of it. A third compelling reason why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel comes from Jesus. Number three. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because it reveals unbelief. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because it reveals unbelief. Mark chapter 8 verse 38 gives us this quotation from Jesus. I'm sure Paul was well aware of this. I'm sure it added to his motivation. Perhaps I should have given this one first. But let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 8, verse 38, where Jesus makes it clear that if you're ashamed of Him, and His gospel certainly, you don't belong to Him. Pretty hardcore. Pretty straightforward. Pretty bold. You know, if you didn't know better, you might want to say, well, who do you think you are? Son of God? Yes. The author and the perfecter of the faith. He is the evangel of evangelism. He is the gospel ultimately. And He speaks about this matter. In Mark 8, verse 38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation The Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Those are good words. 
He's talking about His second coming. He's talking about judgment. And He's saying, if you're ashamed of Me, I'm going to be ashamed of you come judgment day. And as uncomfortable as it might make me feel, I do like it that it says, for whoever is ashamed. You know, because that keeps me from thinking, well, obviously I'm not ashamed because, you know, there, there, there are 500 people here. Obviously I'm not ashamed because look at all of these people. I'm not ashamed because look over what I wrote. I'm not ashamed because look at all the traveling I've done in the name of the gospel. You know, whatever. Whoever is ashamed of me or my words. I like that because it helps me to see that, you know what, no one is beyond or above being ashamed of Christ. It's a serious deal, a serious matter. It obviously reveals unbelief. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm not ashamed to tell you what Jesus said. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. I'm not ashamed that Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, tired, and burdened, heavy laden, He said, perhaps because of religion even, because of your sin and living with the guilt of your sin. He said, come to me and I will give you rest. I'm not ashamed to tell you that Christ is the one to go to for spiritual rest. I'm not ashamed to tell you that the way to God is by believing in the perfect work and death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. I'm not ashamed to tell you that because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I would urge you on behalf of Christ, believe. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. If you're here today and you're a Christian, I'll say all the same things as far as Christ, but I would urge you, please, don't be ashamed. And, and, and when, you, when you're feeling tempted to be ashamed, go to the Gospel. Go to the cross. See the benefits of the cross. See your own life and what the, what the Gospel has done in your life and meditate upon the truth about Christ. And that will embolden you, even as this passage does, to not be ashamed. I would also ask you, if you are a Christian, please insist, please demand, whether you're part of this church or another church, insist upon clear gospel proclamation. Insist that your leaders are not ashamed of the gospel. Challenge them. Confront them. Pray for them. Help them. We would be fooling ourselves to think somehow we will never be ashamed of the gospel. That's not the case at all. As history rolls on, as history repeats itself, you know, this, this will be a dead church someday. And if you're here and you're a pastor, pray that your people would insist that you lead with clarity of speech with the gospel. Please remember John 8 and the whoever is ashamed of me. 
Please be bold. Please train your people with the gospel. Please don't be ashamed. And how is it that you can lead yourself to not be ashamed? Keep looking at the cross. Keep looking at the power of the gospel. Meditate upon that. Think upon that. See it in your own life so that you are not ashamed leading other people in shame as we are embarrassed by Jesus. Because you're not doing anyone a favor by watering it down, trimming the edges, making it more palatable, because while you may say it's in love, and your heart might trick you into thinking it's in love, you are cutting people off from that which is the power of God for salvation. You're not loving them. You're cutting them off from the antidote, from the cure that you have. If I had 20 more minutes, you know what I would want to talk about next? Well, I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm just kidding. I'd want to go back to Romans 1 a bit and see verse 15 where Paul said he is eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And I would want us to meditate and think about the fact that he's writing to Christians and he wants to come and preach the gospel to them. We've talked about this multiple times. He can't go, so he gives him the gospel. What does he mean by the gospel? He means Romans. (laughs) What he means by the gospel is Romans, the deep end of the pool. And how many times are we quick to say things about Jesus, but we certainly wouldn't want to talk about the things that Romans says about Jesus? If I don't want to talk about the stuff that's in Romans, there's a clue. I'm embarrassed by something. It's called the gospel. That would fit the context of Romans chapter 1. Please pray that I'm not. And I'm praying the same thing for you and for others. Pray with me now. Father, thank you for Romans and thank you for the gospel more importantly, but it's great to have a book that unpacks it in such a simple way and a complex way. God, where we are ashamed of the gospel, when we are ashamed of the gospel, bring about quick, speedily, speedy repentance. And Lord, where we are bold about the gospel and clear and compassionate about the gospel, Lord, we would ask that you would affirm that. And we pray for the pastors here. We pray for the pastors in other places that you might help them to be good leaders who are not ashamed. You might give them uh, people that surround them to challenge them to not be ashamed. That, Lord, you would also just help us as Christians as we live in Omaha, Nebraska and other places that we would not be ashamed, that we would love Christ so much and we would see the power of the gospel so clearly. We would see the demonstration of Christ's righteousness so amazingly that we would not be ashamed, but quick to speak the truth in love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.